Good morning, friends. How are we doing this morning? Good, good. We were joking at our community group this week. One of our community group members said um, we should title this sermon, How to Get a Promotion. So, no, no, uh, we will find that that is not the case. Before we get started in the sermon this morning, I wanted to give you an update on something and ask for you to be a part of what God has called us to as a church right here in downtown Orlando. It was a year ago today where God gave me this opportunity to be lead pastor here at Cross Point downtown. And it has been a tremendous year for us. And when I came on board uh, here, my family and I, we clung to a promise. And the promise was given by Jesus. And it was before Peter, the apostle, And it was Jesus telling Peter that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And this promise of Jesus is one that we look back over 2,000 years and we see that it is Jesus that is building his church. The church has been through trials. The church has been through difficulties. The church has been through problems. The church has been through pains. The church has been refined. The church has been through many different things. But at the end of the day, what stands in the church is its Savior, Jesus, who is building her up. Right? So that was a really important promise for me because just a few months earlier... The lead pastor that was here at Cross Point downtown had had an affair and resigned due to moral failure. And it was a real difficult time for us as a congregation. God used Pastor Andrew in an amazing way. And it was a very difficult time because many of you here remember that like it was yesterday. And the difficulties, the woundedness, the pain, the struggle, the angst that comes alongside of an event like that leaves you wondering, God, are you really at work here? But through the chaos, through the rubble, what we saw here at Cross Point downtown is no different that we see with the church at large, is that when you clear the rubble and the foundation is laid bare, it's Jesus. Not any man, not any woman, it's Jesus, and that Jesus is building his church. Paul tells the church in Corinth that Jesus is the master builder. And when Cross Point downtown was planted in January of 2013 with a mission to point this city to Jesus Christ, the mission has changed not one bit to where we stand today. It's still the mission of Cross Point to point our city to Jesus Christ. And for us today, in each and every day, there's steps that we take of obedience into what God has called us to as a church. And the step that I want to announce to us today is a step that I've been announcing, I've been sharing with us over the last several months, but it's one where today I want us to feel the weight and gravity of that as we as a church take this step together that we will be self-sustaining in January of 2017. Now, what does that mean? When we planted in January of 2013, we planted with the support of many organizations and individuals. When churches get started, they typically rely on the gifts and contributions of others in order to get started. And 
over time, those gifts and contributions that come from the outside begin to subside and the internal contributions that are given from within the con- uh, congregation are that which sustains the body of Christ. So in 2016, we raised a total of $25,000 in external contributions and our total budget was $175,000. So it's a small piece of the pie that we raised for 2016, but it's a piece of the pie nonetheless, right? And it's a big step for us to make this next step in saying that we want to be self-sustaining. If we are going to live on mission as a church here in downtown Orlando, it's important that we're self-sustaining and that we're viable. Because if we don't ever become self-sustaining, we're going to have to close our doors. But yet God's promise stands and God is doing this work through you here today. And so the next question I want us to ask is, how is this going to take place? How is God going to do this because remember we're not reliant upon ourselves for this but we are reliant upon God because we're self-sustaining doesn't mean we're independent it actually means that I'm praying more than I ever have been right because we are reliant upon a work of God and so I want to leave us with three things as we go from here today number one I ask that you intercede pray 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 that God would bring this to reality. And I want you to ask God to particularly work through you to help you make this possible right here at Cross Point Downtown. Many of you are giving at many different levels, but I want us to ask the question, what does the step of faith mean in obedience? So we pray for God to make this possible. We pray for our part in it, that we would walk in obedience to God. And then the second thing we do is we invest. We give, we give of our tithes and offerings to Cross Point Downtown. We give 10% of our income to God's work in his church, seeing that his church is being built and those monies are going to the advancement of the gospel in the city of downtown Orlando. So we realize our part and we contribute. Now this is not a work for the few, but for the many. That we're all involved here. We all receive the benefits of God's ministry of this church and we all want to see the benefits of God's ministry of this church reach the city. And so we all give sacrificially and generously to what God has called us to here in downtown Orlando. And then the third thing we do is we invite. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the city. We are a lighthouse for the gospel. And so we invite our friends, our family, our coworker, our neighbors, the people that we interact with on a day-to-day basis into the life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. Because it's all about seeing a city redeemed by the power of the gospel for the glory of God. So this is a big work that God has called us to here, friends, and a work that I wanted to take a time and allow the, the weight of it to fill us, but with a deep reliance for us as a church to come to the Lord together. So I want to ask Pastor Micah, Pastor Josiah, would you come and join me here? And then Kevin and his wife Jan are are going to pray for us here this morning as we rely upon God and just all of us going to doing that step one, interceding for this right now. Thank you, Kevin. Kevin and Jan and Mike and Josiah have been so 
um, critical to what God is doing in this church. And I'm so grateful for them and the ministry of the gospel through them. They've brought so much encouragement to so many of you. And it feels really good to, to be on mission with them. So we are getting into Daniel chapter 3. It was in 2009, March 24th. I'm in the Winnie Palmer Hospital and I'm holding my little baby girl in the NICU. She was born the morning before at three pounds, eight ounces. Seven weeks premature, her twin brother Camden, four pounds, two ounces. I could hold each of them in the palm of my hands like this. And you know, when, when those moments happen, if any of you have ever had a child or even held a newborn child, the gravity of what you're doing just seems to soak you in, saturates you. In that early morning hours, we're here in, at night, early morning hours, mom gave birth to my beautiful twins. They were rushed off into the NICU to give them oxygen and all that kind of stuff and get them okay. And by the grace of God, they were okay. And we were both resting. My wife was exhausted. I wonder why. Um, and I'm out and I'm giddy. I'm just, I'm a little giddy now. I'm a dad. I'm a dad. And so I'm walking through the halls of the NICU and then I, I go to this glass box or it's a plastic box, a really strong plastic box. I couldn't figure out how to get into it. Um, and there's my beautiful daughter. And she's so tiny. She's got these little fingers and soft skin. And I'm, and I'm just aware of every noise she's making, every single movement she's making and I'm just in awe of God's creation in this moment that God has given me. And then I start to freak out. God has given her to me. And so the NICU nurse comes up to me at this moment. I haven't yet held my two children. They got Carrie first and then they were rushed off. And so the NICU nurse comes to me and she says, would you like to hold her? And my heart sunk. Yes, I'd love to hold her. And she says, well, we're going to hold her skin to skin. And I said, okay, what, what skin to skin? So she begins just to take off Adeline's onesie. And, and then I, oh, I lift open my shirt and she puts Adeline right down onto my chest. And I feel her warm skin and heart beating right on top of my heart. And I say, oh, this is good. And in that moment, the first thought that came through my mind was, God, help me. Help me help her worship you. That was the first thought that came in my heart at that moment. And it's interesting when you're holding your child and you realize the weight of the life that's before them. And I've got Camden and Adeline that I'm both thinking about in that moment. And the weight of their life is that their life would be lived with a direction. And the direction would be the worship of God with all of their life. 
Now, why did that come to my mind at that moment? Because I know that for me, that's actually the most important thing about my life, is that I would live for the worship of God. And I know that for my family, that's the most important direction for them. And I know that as I pastor you, my job is to lead you before the throne of God's grace each and every Sunday to cause you to behold Jesus. And that's my job as pastor dad. And that's a job that I... I take this morning, I take today, and I take for you, and I take for what God has called us to. But that is the most important thing. That she, my beautiful daughter Adeline, my son Camden, my daughter Lily, would live their life for the worship and adoration and praise of God. Now, it's easier said than done, isn't it? Because there's difficulties, there's challenge, there's turbulence that's happening in the world around us. They're going to experience that in second grade. They're going to experience that as 12th graders. They're going to experience it when they're 22. They're going to experience it when they're 82. Turbulence. Life's challenges that steal away at our worship. We live in a turbulent world. And that's what we see with Rack, Shack, and Benny. These men are being put to the test. And the test is a war over their worship. And it's a war that's raging, not only in them so long ago, but it's raging in us today. It's a battle for our hearts. And the test that is before them is would they bow the knee to another God? Would they bow the knee to another God? An idol, that which isn't worthy of their worship. And they're not really given a choice. It's bow the knee or die. That's your choices. I mean, this is where what really matters really has to matter because if it doesn't really matter, then you're going to put something else before God and think that's what really matters and then your testimony becomes null and void. But Rack, Shack, and Benny, forgive me that I don't call them by their real names. I've watched VeggieTales one too many times. Rack, Shack, and Benny are there and their life is being put to the test in that moment. To catch you up on a little bit of a context, King Nebuchadnezzar is in the second year of his reign. In Daniel chapter 2, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is violently awakened by a dream, so much so that he goes on a terror and he wants to kill anybody and everybody because no one can tell him the dream or the interpretation. And it's really important for this king to know that his kingdom is in his control so he would know this dream because these dreams were a shadow of what was to come. They were a gateway into the future. And so Daniel Daniel pops on the scene and Daniel and his friends cry out for mercy. Daniel has the gift of interpretation. He also receives this vision, this dream from God to which he can go before Nebuchadnezzar and tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream. And Daniel told him his dream and the dream was that there was an image and this image represents 
kings and kingdoms and the images in four parts. The head's made of gold, the chest is made of silver, the waist is made of bronze, and the legs and feet are made of iron. Four different metals. The head made of gold was that of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar received this dream and it was all well and good. And Nebuchadnezzar even says to Daniel at the end of dream, your God is the God of gods. He is the Lord of kings. And you think maybe Nebuchadnezzar is starting to get it. But no. Here we are in chapter 3 seeing Nebuchadnezzar in an act of defiance recreating the image of the dream. And this time it's not in four different parts, but it's all of gold. Because what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do is he's trying to change the trajectory of God's perfect plan. In defiance, Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he is God. And he creates a God. He makes a God. Anytime that you make a God, our culture makes a God, the gods that we make aren't in the image of God, but they're made in our image. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. This God represents King Nebuchadnezzar and his rule and reign over his kingdom and how nobody will overtake it. Not even God himself, because Nebuchadnezzar believes himself to be God-like status in this moment. And he calls a worship service. It's a festival of sorts. He goes out into a central location. He brings together the provinces. He calls all the prefects, the governors, all the who's who's, all the people who know anything and everything at that time. All the people of great importance are supposed to be there and they are to pledge their allegiance in this solid display of unity to King Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And if they don't, you're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. So those are your choices. And at the sound of music, bow the knee, and everything's good. And everything's good. Well, if you remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were promoted with Daniel, and they were promoted as leaders in the kingdom. And they were present at Dura, and they were called to worship Nebuchadnezzar in that moment. And then the music plays. And the whole field of people are bowed on knee and there's three standing. And the Chaldeans are looking around. Now, this is really an interesting point here because the Chaldeans were just saved by Daniel and his friends. And now the Chaldeans are those going to Nebuchadnezzar and saying, Hey, hey, King, O mighty King, O powerful, mighty Nebuchadnezzar, we want you to know that there are three people who are not doing what you say of them. And Nebuchadnezzar's furious. How could anybody defy my orders? How could anybody? I gave them a choice. They either worship me or they die. How could they defy my orders? And so Nebuchadnezzar brings them before him and he demands that they worship. He demands that they worship. What we see in this first point is we ask the question, what is the object of your worship? What is the object of worship? Verses Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, you see that there is an object of worship here. And the object of worship, which is that, that, is that which is made by Nebuchadnezzar and is this state-sponsored worship, this government-sanctioned 
worship. And here in America, while it may not be a government-sanctioned worship, there's certainly worship that takes place in our nation that our culture puts the pressure on us to bow the knee to other things. And the interesting thing about it is just like in the time of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar really didn't care what, who, or anyone else worshipped as long as they worshipped according to his priority. You could worship God, you could worship Jehovah as long as you pledge your allegiance to the state first. And then your worship became secondary. And so it became something that was truly significant for Rack, Shack, and Benny in that moment where they truly, where they truly surrendered to Jesus, to the Lord, to Jehovah, to God as the object of their worship. And this is the pressure that we face to us, for us. Christianity, it's okay in America. We're here today and it's okay. Now, if the news was being broadcast here, they would have some contentions with some points that I am saying. And we would receive insult and injury that would come from the world around us. And so it is when your faith is made public. They say, you could worship Jesus, just keep it to yourself. Or how about this? You could worship a Jesus that's been tamed into the image of the United States of America, but not the Jesus that we find in the scriptures. And then we're left to put our faith to the test. Do we believe what America says about Jesus or about God or about our faith? Or we, do we believe what the Bible says about God or our faith? And this is the test that Daniel and his friends were under. Would they give their life to idolatry? Or would they give their life to trust in the Lord completely? And even when it cost them their life. Who is the object of your worship? What are some of the things that you bow the knee to? We don't have a gun pointing to our head in America And here's why. Because they don't need to. It doesn't need to be. Because our hearts are so deceived and we think that other things of this world can satisfy. One of the objects of worship in our country is if you pull out a dollar bill, it says, in God we trust. Well, the irony there, it's in the dollar bill that we trust. We think that somehow this dollar bill is going to buy us significance, going to buy us happiness, going to buy us relationships, going to buy us a hope and a future, and our dreams will all come true if we just have the amount of money we need in a bank. And here's the thing, it's never enough. There's idolatry in this world that we bend the knee to, and America's okay with that. But where push comes to shove in our culture today is when we say that there is an objective truth that comes from the scriptures. And what God says is real and true and is meaning for your life. And then the fires rage, don't they? And then the pressure comes. And that pressure can move us towards God or away from God because the promises of God isn't that you won't go through the fire actually the promises of God is that there is a fire and you're going to go through it and if you worship Jesus it's going to be hotter than ever that is a promise because this world wants us to bend the knee to idolatry 
And then the question becomes, what is the object of our trust? Worship and trust are intrinsically linked. What you worship, you will trust in. What you trust in, you will obey. What you worship, you will trust in. What you trust in, you will obey. If the almighty dollar is what you worship, then that dollar determines where you spend your time, where you spend your money, where you spend your energy, where your heart satisfaction life, the anxieties that come to you when the money's not there are a result of our feeling the pressure to worship what America worships which is what money can buy us, the power it gives, the approval we want, the comfort we seek, or the control that we could lust after. And we obey what we trust. And here, friends, the object of our trust is not the idols of this world, but the God who created it. And this is the object of trust that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are forced to ask the question, will they believe every word that comes from the mouth of God or will they believe the words that come from King Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar says, I have the power to save your life or take it. Who will you trust? Is your God powerful enough to save you from me? And then they're faced with the reality of God's command. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Is that a good word for God's good people, that God's people should believe as a good and true word? King Nebuchadnezzar wants them to believe that he is the one in charge when in defiance they believe that God is the one who is mighty and powerful and the one whom they should obey. You're going to obey the idols of this world or you're going to obey the true God. And even when your life is on the line, now that's a question that I had to ask myself as I'm doing this study myself and I'm contemplating God's truth for it. I had to ask myself, you know, I could have like, you know, if I was in that situation, like I could like bow down, but not really bow down in my heart. Somebody mentioned that at our community group, how easy it would have been just to like figuratively stand in our heart, like I'm standing in defiance in my heart. But then you're breaking the commands of God that says, no, no other gods before me. And their life is on the line. And they're brought before the fiery furnace. Could you imagine being on the threshold of being thrown into an incinerator? Could you imagine that? And the people that trust in Nebuchadnezzar, the mighty men that Nebuchadnezzar called to bring the men into the fiery furnace, that trusted King Nebuchadnezzar with their life, ironically lost it. Idolatry demands your allegiance, but it can never fulfill the promises that it tells you. And these men trusted in God. You'll see here that they say in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. 
So Nebuchadnezzar was saying, maybe you guys had it all wrong. Maybe you didn't hear the music right. Maybe, maybe for some reason, like you, you misunderstood the command. Let me repeat it for you. You worship this idol when you hear the music, and then everything's going to be okay. Here's what they say back. No, no, Nebuchadnezzar, we heard you right the first time. And we'll tell you again, you play that music, we're not bending the knee. And it says that the face on Nebuchadnezzar, the expression on his face changed. So Nebuchadnezzar really realized that these men, these men needed meant business. And at the same time, he realized that he could not control them. He thought that he could control them with the threat of taking their life. But yet these men said, take my life. It doesn't matter. What matters is that I'm faithful to the God who created me and who loves me. The promise of Romans 8.28 is a promise that we have to cling to because those moments, that fiery furnace of this world is going to come and God is going to ask us to walk through the fire. Romans says, and we know, and we know that for those who love God, and are called according to his purposes, God works for the good. And we know this. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew in that moment that even if they died, it would be for their good and God's glory. They say to Nebuchadnezzar, our God can save us. Our God is able to save us. And even if he doesn't, we are not bowing down to your God-forsaken idols. What power, what power there is when we realize that God is everything and we won't give in to the pressures that can succumb us from this world. God is the object of their worship. God is the object of their trust. And God is is the object of their faith. Let me ask you this question. Do you have an object-oriented faith or an outcome-oriented faith? Do you have an object-oriented faith or an outcome-oriented faith? It's a question that I had to ask in moving to downtown Orlando as we sold our house and we moved from Lake Nona. And I'm reliant upon God to build this church. It's a question that we've had to ask of ourselves. What if God doesn't do it? (laughs) Well, what are we doing? We're being obedient to God. Is that that enough? Is that enough? Is, Is being faithful to the one who's been faithful to you, is that enough? Is it, God, I will... I will not bow down to this idol as long as you save me. As long as you deliver me from the fire. No, they said, even if God doesn't deliver us from the fire, he will certainly deliver us from out of your hands because I'd rather be dead than worship you. This is a object-oriented faith instead of outcome-oriented faith. When we have an outcome-oriented faith, we bargain with God and we try to get God to bring the chips into our favor and we neglect his glory realizing that God might ask us to do the hard things at the hard times so that he may be glorified and it might even cost us our lives. 
An object-oriented faith says that God is the goal, not the outcome. And here's why. Because we know that deliverance has already happened. You know, we read this story from the other side of it. We read this story realizing that God has brought salvation. And that God's promise means that death has been defeated by Jesus Christ. And when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saw the dream that Daniel was given to give to Nebuchadnezzar, it was a dream that showed that there would be a king and a kingdom that would crush all other kingdoms. And out of this kingdom would be carved a rock that would be carved out of the side of a mountain that would bring down God's judgment upon those who are his enemies. And they saw their deliverance. They saw the ultimate deliverance of Israel. And they saw the hope of the Messiah that was to come, that would bring salvation. So even if their life was to be incinerated in that moment, their trust was squarely on the Lord. And their faith was in Him. Is your faith on the object, which is Jesus? The object of worship that we are called to is Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image. He is the image. Not Nebuchadnezzar's graven idol of gold. It's Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. If you want to see God, you see God through Jesus who makes God known to us. Even the fact that they could worship God in that moment was a promise that must have had to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If Jesus was not the fulfillment of that promise, then there was no worship. Because God must make himself accessible to us. We cannot, by our obedience, call down God and say, You owe me because we are sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus makes God known to us by his death, burial, and resurrection. He is the object of our worship. He is the object of our trust. He's the object of our trust. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Do you see that? Jesus would not bow down to the idols of this world that says, give it up. Give up your salvation plan. Give up this plan of redemption. No, but Jesus walked in defiance of the world that was trying to get him to be conformed. And he was obedient to the point of death. Trust. Trust. The only reason why we can trust is God's grace. Nobody could stand here and say that I've trusted God completely and fully. Nobody can point our fingers at somebody else and say I'm better than you. But we can point to Jesus and say he did it and he did it perfectly. And because he did, we can Because he has given us this through his grace. His perfect redemption that happened on our behalf. Because we cannot trust in our trust, but we only trust in Jesus' trust. Do you trust him? And then finally, I want to ask you, is he the object of your faith? Is Is he the one that you hope in? 
that you believe in, the one that's bringing this good work of redemption about in you, is he the object of your faith? Not the outcome. Is Jesus the object of your faith? And here's where it all kind of comes to ground level for us today is Jesus is the, out, uh, the object of our faith not because we believe, but in spite of our not believing. He is the object of our faith because be- Jesus came down, we can believe. We don't believe and, and conjure up this faith in our heart. Even the faith that we have in Jesus is a gift of God that's brought about by Jesus. And it's a work of grace that we rely upon. And here's why. Jesus went through the fires of this world and he was crucified. And there is another fire that's seven times hotter than the flames of this world. And it's the fires of hell. And Jesus went through the fires of God's wrath alone. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar saw a fourth man in the fire. And it was the presence of God that was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It may have been an angel. It may have been a pre-incarnate Christ. But nonetheless, it points us to the same reality that God doesn't promise us that we won't go through the fire. But he promises that he will be with us in the fire. And the same is true of our faith today is that God did go through, Jesus did go through the fire of God's wrath. And he went alone. He went forsaken. There's no one with him that could withstand the flames of God's judgment. But God's judgment burned upon Jesus. And our sin was put upon him and he was punished in our place so that when we go under the fire of God's judgment it's not us that stands but Jesus and this is the reality that the story of Rack, Shack and Benny brings to us today not that you survive the fire but that Jesus has not that you survive the fire but that Jesus survived it for you that he went under the waters of God's judgment and he came out alive so that you might live. And right now, the question being asked of each and every one of us today, is this the grace that we believe in? It's like when I'm holding my daughter and I'm reliant upon God's strength to help me raise her as a child that worships God with all that she has. I know my daughter will fail him. I know you have failed him. I know I have failed him. But I also know that God's grace is sufficient to cover all your offenses. And right now, through the power of his Holy Spirit, he is calling us to take a step not away from him, but towards him. So that we can have the newness in life that he has called us to in the gospel. Salvation is in Christ, in Christ alone. Is that enough for you? Do you believe that? 
Is that enough for you in the difficulties of life when the fires blaze around you? And when you are succumbed by the flames, which will happen, when you are succumbed by the threats and the temptations, which will happen, is Jesus the one that you run to in repentance, asking God for his grace? Because you're not perfect and you need his redemption day by day. Everybody today, this is the application. Everybody today, we fall at the feet of Jesus and we start afresh and anew because he gives us that grace. And that grace is good and glorious. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your perfect work of redemption on our behalf. Thank you that right now the playing field is level. Nobody here can say that they're as good as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And even Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego need the grace, have needed the grace that has been made known to us today. God, we need your help to withstand the fiery tests of this world. But we also need to realize that to withstand those tests, God, we've been able to withstand your fiery flames. And it's not because of us, but it's because of Jesus. And it's because of Jesus that we have this promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And we rest upon that truth. And we worship you. We bow the knee to you. In Jesus' name, amen.